This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Our first guest argues that Latinos are the strongest drivers of the U.S. economy. He says that's largely misunderstood by politicians and the American public, as Latinos are demonized this election year. Saul Trujillo made this argument earlier this summer at the Aspen Ideas Festival. He used to run U.S. West, what's now CenturyLink. He's also a former member of the Colorado Commission on Higher Education, and he has advised both Republican and Democratic White Houses on trade policy. And Saul, welcome to the program. Thank you, Warren. Ryan, sorry. That's okay. I'll say that uh, this conversation is part of CPR's focus on the growing Latino electorate in this election year. Uh, But what evidence for uh, this premise do you have that Latinos are the biggest drivers of the U.S. economy when they are less than 20 percent of the population overall here? Well, Ryan, uh, I just want to make a a beginning uh, correction my, my comments at the Aspen uh, Ideas Festival were really about the domestic portion of our economy. And, and I wanted to be very specific because, um, you know, when we think about uh, creating jobs locally, when we think about stimulating purchase behavior, when we think about the, the things that generate revenues within our, our domestic portion of the economy, Latinos really are the drivers. So let me give you a, a few data points, if if you'd like, because uh, as a business person, you always look for data as opposed to just you know sharing your personal opinions, whether they're data free or maybe with data. So the first one that I like to use is the fact that over the last decade in the United States of America, over fifty one percent of all new home mortgages taken out have been taken out by Latino families. Now, again, back to grade school when I was learning basic math and, and numbers, uh, I quickly learned that 51% means the majority. It means more than half. And it is not a niche. It is not a small number. It is a material number. And when you look at 51% of all home mortgages and you think about the multiplier effect of for every mortgage, there had to be a home or a condo or whatever that, that had to be built all the jobs created there, whether they be carpenters or mason workers or whatever it might be, when you think about the ecosystem of financing them, when you think about insuring them, when you think about furnishing them, it is a large, large impact in terms of the economy. But I just use that as one example. If you look at the major consumer product companies in the United States or those that sell into the United States, you'll find that the vast majority of them, the single largest growth player in terms of their customer base are Latinos. If you take, for example, and this has been quoted by uh, a board member, a former board member of Walmart who was on uh, the Charlie Rose show with with myself and Henry Cisneros, hmm. uh, you know, we talked about the fact that over 90% of Walmart's year-on-year domestic sales are tied to Latino as consumers. If you look at uh, Wells Fargo, um, the CEO there has quoted in, in, in various uh, appearances that almost 75% of their year-on-year growth is tied to Latinos. And when you look at, at automotive companies and you l- listen to the CEO of Honda and, and this is, again, public information, nearly um, 
100% of their new growth of, of car sales is tied to Latinos. And I can go on and on. So on the, on the consumption side of our economy, you can see that Latinos are driving the vast majority of growth. And you talk and I about, want to emphasize the word growth. Yes, of, that is of new business. And, and you told Forbes that big consumer products companies, the likes of which you have mentioned already, increasingly are targeting Latino buyers. And I want to play something to reinforce that, that you said earlier this summer in Aspen. You asked the audience to imagine America's family picture. Think about your old family photo that was from 40, 50 years ago versus the family photo that you have 40 or 50 years later. And what does it look like, right? This is what's happening now. We have a new family photo. So there are, you know, the white male, female, or African-American, or whatever was in the photo before sitting in the front. They're still there. But now sitting in the front, center stage, is this Latino flavor to the new mainstream, And really, this is important to talk about a new mainstream. It's not that other people disappear, that that's bad, or anything else. It's that it's enriched, enhanced, and now it's led differently. So can you give us an example of how corporate America, be it Walmart or a car company, has responded to this new mainstream? You say that it's a huge area of growth. How are they tailoring the message? How are they changing to adapt? Well, I, I think, first of all, you know, it's, it's multi-layered, right? There's nothing that's just pure and simple. But first of all, you, you look at companies that are the more progressive ones. Take, for example, Wells Fargo. Okay. Uh, the CEO and the board there, they have Latinos on their board of directors. So they have a perspective. And, and, and one of the key things, Ryan, that I would say to you is if, if you looked at a company that was about to go to India – and open up, uh, you know, that as a market. Would you just have the same people that have, you know, been involved in your governance uh, as part of your governance, or would you try to enhance it with people that have a perspective, right, about India or Asia or Southeast Asia or whatever part of the world that you might be entering? Same thing with China. Well, all companies have done that in the past. But in particular, as you think about the Latino consumer, if you think about the the fact that nearly a million young Hispanics are turning 18 every year, and, and these are native-born. So this is nothing about immigration. It's about native-born. You know, there's, there's a dramatic opportunity for growth. So you, you start at the board level. You look then at senior executives, you know, that have, again, the affinities and the understanding, just like we did in the late 70s and early 80s, when we found out that women made 70% of all home purchases, right? It was a great aha moment for those of us that were in business. And we started thinking differently about the people that we needed working in our companies. And then finally, it's to the advertising, marketing, and and that sort of thing, uh, which is about how you message. And and I again, I, I like to use Wells Fargo as a great example, but Walmart has them and, and others do too. But looking at, at their ads uh, of, of Wells Fargo, and I would encourage people to go online and, and pull up some of the ads that they use, which are multi-generational, uh, you know, 92% in English and maybe a few phrases in Spanish. But it shows the dimension of who their customers are, how they're growing, how different generations are interacting with them as a bank. 
and and basically a very positive message as opposed to silence. So we or talked, assuming or assuming that they're not there. We've talked uh, to a great extent uh, so far about Latinos as consumers, and I want to focus a bit on. Latinos as job creators. In Aspen, you cited a report from the Stanford Business School, and it found that 86% of the growth of small businesses in the U.S. between 2007 and 2012 were Hispanic-owned. 86%. And yet, as far as I know, that doesn't include any of the big tech companies, the companies whose IPOs we hear about on the news. Is that just anecdotal to my experience, or do you think that Latino entrepreneurs face more obstacles when they try to grow the companies that they start? Well, well, the the answer is is again uh, a little bit binary, and I and I do want to talk about one the growth, because over the last probably two two plus decades, we've gone from let's say about half a million to three quarters of a million. Latino-owned businesses to now well over 4 million businesses. So the entrepreneurial, when you think about Latinos, everybody should think about entrepreneurs because in the United States of America for the last decade and a half or two, the single largest source of new business formations have been with Latino entrepreneurs. But of course, that's kind of point number one. The huge huge question is, yeah, to, to what extent do they survive, you know? Well, well, and that's a great question. And what we did in the study that was done by the Stanford um, Latino Entrepreneurship Initiative, which is, the study was actually done by the Hoover Institute, basically what we found there was that Latinos are, are the most pro- prolific entrepreneurs in the U.S., which is an, a kind of an unknown fact. Uh, and I use the word fact consciously. The second thing is that those businesses that were created by Latinos, they do not in in total um, reach the same average size uh, and volumes of a non-Latino-owned business. Mm-hmm. And so then to your question, which is the right question, you know, the question is why, you know, or in Spanish it'd be por qué. Por qué. And, or if you were in France, it'd be pourquoi. But, but, but anyways... <laughs> The, the 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 issue is is what 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 is the hindrance there? Is there something there that that is unique? And the answer is we think so, and we're gathering more data in the next survey that will help us further answer. But you know, financing is key to any business, whether you're white male, white female, African American, or Hispanic, or whatever. But the point is is that with that, certain people have different access to different networks. Which are which are maybe more connected than others. If yep. you look at the classic, classic white male, white female, th- there are networks that are above. Let's call it the core. You know, everybody starts with the credit card balance, and they start with uh, borrowing from mom and dad and sisters and brothers and whatever else. But when they reach a growth stage, they're still too young to get a loan from a bank because they don't have enough history or they don't have enough collateral, you know, for collateralizing debt. So then they have to go to that next layer. And in the tech sense, which is where I've spent most of my career, you know, we have what we call the angel investor networks, but every industry has them. They're not quite called angels, but it's that next layer of financing. And getting access and and networked into that is really critical. 
And that's where Latino entrepreneurs are probably the least networked of all groups in the United States. And so that's where we're also focusing on how do we create better networking, better awareness, better better um, understanding of the opportunities, both uh, with Latinos to the angel-like investors and the angel-like investors knowing of the great opportunity that they have to invest in these kinds of businesses. And thus harnessing the power, you say, inherent in the community that is entrepreneurial at its heart. Let's continue this discussion after a quick break. We're speaking with Saul Trujillo, Republican businessman, former member of the Colorado Commission on Higher Education, co-founder of the Latino Donor Collaborative, and as part of our coverage of the Latino electorate in this election year, we're getting a better sense of their market power. Uh, It's a community that's often vilified for hurting the economy more than helping, and Saul Trujillo is blowing that myth uh, out of the water. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And as part of our focus on the Latino electorate in this election year, we are getting a better sense for their economic power today with Saul Trujillo. He's a Republican businessman and former member of the Colorado Commission on Higher Education, former CEO of U.S. West, which became CenturyLink eventually. And uh, earlier this summer, he participated in a panel at the Aspen Ideas Festival called Latinos, the Strongest Drivers of the U.S. economy. And I want to talk about what this means for the presidential election. You've said that the Latino economic realities we've discussed so far contrast with normal political dialogue about Latinos. Here's what one of your co-panelists said in Aspen. This is Henry Cisneros, whom you mentioned, a real estate financier, former executive at Univision. He also served as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under Bill Clinton. The last year has told us we have some other work to do, and that is to, to crawl out of the hole that we're in and put in uh, in the American consciousness and in the American dialogue. Mm. Uh, we saw it first a few years ago when Governor Pete Wilson in California decided to make a wedge issue out of Latinos and cast all immigrants in a negative light in order to win an election. Mm. He did that, but he alienated Latinos in California from his... Uh, party for a long, long time. This year we're seeing being treated like piñatas by Donald Trump, Mm. and it is completely inappropriate, completely wrong on the facts, and damaging not just to Latinos, which angers me beyond words, but to the country. And to be grouped together, you know, uh, he was talking about immigrants when he said Mexico sending us their rapists and murderers. But it conflated to the entire Latino community and people think of Latinos somehow as, I mean, it's, it, it bothers me that, that America itself has not uh, risen, uh, risen up, up yeah. and said, yeah, yeah. this is just wrong. We're not going to engage this kind of politics. So uh, that tells me we're still in a hole. People don't understand who we are. Now, Henry Cisneros is a Democrat. You're a Republican. And actually, together, you founded a group to provide a more accurate portrayal of Latinos and their contributions. It's called the Latino Donor Collaborative. I guess, first of all, do you agree with Henry Cisneros that Latinos are grouped together and stereotyped by politicians and the media covering elections? And and does that bother you? Well, I think, Ryan, first of all, I think both Henry and I would state, and we did state it there in in Aspen, is that we're Americans first. 
and and I've truly believed that my whole life, which is I care most about my country, then I do care about my community that I you know grew up in and live in, et cetera, et cetera. And then then you start thinking about party politics and and that sort of thing. And I yes, I am a Republican, and yes, I am disgusted by the rhetoric of Donald Trump. Um, does that mean that I'm disgusted with the Republican Party? The answer is no, because I look at a lot of governors today that think much differently than Donald Trump, uh, and they think about where the growth is, because at the state level, everybody does think about growth, because they're accountable almost every day. They're real CEOs. They're dealing with education. They're dealing with financing it. They're dealing with creating jobs and creating growth. There's very few presidents that have much effect on, on, on creating jobs and, and you know, helping the economy other than through tax policies, uh, other than through you know, IP uh, strategies and, and investment in, in core technologies that might help you know, foster uh, you know, technology growth or technology-driven growth, et cetera. So the answer is Henry and I, you know, we both are concerned about the language misleading the American public about how to grow our economy. Because all of us, the one thing that is common amongst every group in the United States of America is how do we grow opportunities for jobs? How do we grow opportunities for wages and income? And my answer is always focus on where you can get growth. Focus on where you can stimulate more growth. And that's really the conversation that we're trying to steer it to as opposed to what I would call ridiculous ideas of building walls. We've already learned that people can tunnel underneath walls anytime that they want. And that's what the border governors would tell you. And, and, and I mean Republican border governors would tell you. And, 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 and you know, deporting people, we've already had studies that talk about, you know, it could, it could drive GDP down by two, 200 basis points or 2%, which we're already anemic in our growth. So why do things that would be harmful to the economy and, and dramatically even more harmful over time than focusing on the positives and, and leveraging those positives to create a more depolarized United States of America by creating more growth for everybody in America and not trying to attribute fault on certain groups because the, the accusations are just incorrect. I want to play something else that you said in Aspen this summer. The perception is that more than half of Latinos that are here in the country today came here illegally. Mm. And then more than half of us live our lives in Spanish, and that's because we don't want to be part of this mainstream economy. In reality, about a third of Hispanics in the U.S. are immigrants themselves, so significantly less than half. Uh, But why do you think perception is such an important driver here? Well, I think there's a lot of of fear and angst that's behind, you know, the let's call it the Trump uh, core group of supporters, the 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 nativists, and uh, and other things, because the demographics of the country have dramatically changed. If you're a baby boomer, uh, who tend to be, you know, the the large part of, uh, you know, this phenomenon, you know, it was predominantly white male, white female post World War II, 
And, and, and that's just a statement of fact. It's not an opinion about anything. It's just fact. And what's happened is, is that the replacement rate, the birth rates, et cetera, versus death rates uh, haven't been big enough to sustain that growth. In the meantime, we've, you know, over the last four or five decades, you know, there have been a lot of immigrants, just like there were the prior four or five decades. And just like everybody in this country should acknowledge, unless they're Native American, that they're all from immigrant stock. But the punchline here is, is that the math of the, you know, birth rates, uh, death rates is such that now we have a changed demographic. And I think some people are just basically threatened by it. We've had globalization affect our competitiveness. So we had automotive industries where people were very con- comfortable, manufacturing industries that were com- comfortable with their jobs and their high wages. But in the interim, global forces came into play and people could manufacture and build same things, you know, cheaper. People want to blame that on immigration, and it has nothing to do with immigration. It has everything to do with competitiveness. And and let me just so back to, to the to wrap up really briefly because one thing that is stuck in some people's craw is this notion of illegal immigration and and stopping it. Um, so, just briefly, do you support some type of comprehensive immigration reform? Absolutely. I'm a I'm, I'm a believer. As a business person, you have to solve problems, not just talk about them. Or point fingers. You go solve it. And immigration reform, comprehensive, is really required and because we need workers, we need innovation, and we need growth. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Enjoyed Sol- the conversation, Ryan. Saul Trujillo, businessman and former member of the Colorado Commission on Higher Education. He's co-founder of the Latino Donor Collaborative. And we talked about his Aspen Ideas Festival panel called Latinos, the Strongest Drivers of the U.S. Economy. You can watch that video of the panel at cprnews.org. This is part of our ongoing coverage of the Latino electorate this election year. Here are visits with a group of mostly Democrats and a group of Republicans also at cprnews.org. Coming up, a pickle jar is no place to spend eternity. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Matthew Boyle bought a funeral parlor in Montrose, Colorado, last fall and found something disturbing in the basement. The ashes of 175 people had been abandoned in pickle jars and trash bags. Some were in expensive urns. In one case, cremains had been switched with what appeared to be kitty litter. Boyle is with us by phone from the Rose Memorial Parlor on the Western Slope, where he has spent months writing this wrong. Matthew, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Describe what you found last October when you first went into the basement of your new funeral home. Well, um, basically what we found was quite a surprise to us. And, uh, you know, upon going down into the basement... We noticed that there was a lot of standing water. It was a dank basement. It needed a lot of work at the time when we first got here. And um, we noticed that over in the corner of a what had been the old preparation room back a long time ago, back 40, 50 years ago, um, but now it was just more or less a storage room with water standing um, from, from, you know, years of uh, corrosion and, and whatnot in the, in the cement um, but we found cremated remains. Some were on the ground, some were on shelves, 
some, like you said, were in pickle jars. It was, it was quite a disturbing sight to see um, as a funeral director that, that, that doesn't do that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it, it was, it was a, a discovery that we, we definitely knew right away we had to make right yeah. and do something responsible with these cremated remains. These cremains had been stashed down there, uh, some of them for, you know, decades, many decades. Right. They're... The oldest one we found was from 1947. Oh, goodness. There were numerous owners of the funeral home over those decades. Correct. I guess, first off, were you able to figure out who was responsible for this before we talk about repatriating them? Well, you know, we were. And, and the, the, the really disturbing part is, is that all of those owners, the previous owners, I think there was about four or five of them, had something to do with it. It was as if the, the incompetence was uh, contagious. And um, I don't know if it was one of those things that the next person didn't want to disturb the the previous owner's work, or or if it was just complete negligence altogether, but um, for whatever reason, it accumulated to like you said, 175. Um, some of them were unidentified. Many of them were identified, but the ones that were not identified, we we had a service back in uh, June, and um, we gave them a proper proper scattering and a proper burial for those that were to be buried. Mm. And you did that sort of on mass uh, of the ones that you could not identify. That's correct. And the ones that we could identify, um, we were able to identify some family members for about 50 of those cremated remains. And the family members, you know, after the initial shock had, had worn off, they, they, uh, they came and picked the cremated remains up at the funeral home here um, and, and, you know, did what should have been done years ago with them. What were those phone calls like with the families you could reach? Well, that, that's an interesting question because um, a lot of them were a complete suspense, you know, because they were wondering whether if that was their loved one there or not, or why would this call was being made. Um, they didn't know. They said what, to, what they were going to find when they came in to, to pick up what we said was their, was their loved one's cremated remains because they had thought that, you know, the final disposition had been done already. So, um, you know, they, they were questionable about what they were going to what they were going to find. But when we gave them to them, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, they, they were able to do what was supposed to be done originally, uh, a sense of, 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 of gratitude came over them for sure. I mean, they were very, very thankful that they were able to do the right thing. Yeah, help me understand your business a little bit, because here's what I'm not clear on. Sure. Why weren't their families clamoring for these cremains? It's because they would have put faith in the, the then funeral director to dispose of them properly? Right. I would, I would say it was a, a lot of that. Um, but also, you know, in some of the cases, there was no family at the time to come and pick those cremated remains up. You know, when people pass away, they don't always pass away with family. Um, and this is typical, you know, in, in the funeral business is that somebody would pass away and be cremated and um, there's just nobody there to pick the cremated remains up. Unfortunately, in our case, a lot of them, you know, were to be buried out at our cemetery um, or they were to be scattered over the mountains or they had specific instructions for the cremated remains. So um, the ones that were to be buried at our cemetery, of course, you know, the family decided to, to just let us go ahead and, and you know, take care of that burial. Because hmm. uh, in those cases, 
a lot of those cases, anyhow, there was already a, a grave marker out there, and a, you know, with a year of death on it and everything. So the family had been coming to these graves for years, thinking that their loved one was buried there, when in fact they were in the basement here. And uh, that, oh, that's an that's, awful that's feeling. A tough one. Yeah. yeah, that's a tough one to stomach. You know, it really is. But in the other cases where they were to be scattered, you know, like over the San Juan Mountains or whatnot, the family went and did that themselves. So that was good. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And we're talking about um, a rather disturbing scene that Matthew Boyle walked in on when he bought a funeral parlor in Montrose, Colorado. The cremains of about 175 people had really been abandoned over the decades. And uh, he took it upon himself to repatriate the ones he could and um, also offer a burial to the ones that could not be identified. Correct. Did the people on the phone when you called blame you? I wonder if they were very angry at you. Well, you know, a lot of the people, we they found out by, by uh, the newspaper here in Montrose. What we did when we first came public with it was we announced the names in the newspaper. So what happened was the families would open the newspaper in that morning and see this story, this out, outrageous story, and then see their loved one's name in the paper. And that is when it set in, you know, so when they called us, they, they said, oh, I just saw my, my father's name in the paper. What's going on? He was supposed to have been buried, you know, or he was supposed to have been scattered or, or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, that's, that's, that, was a, that was a tough one, you know, to answer that question, to tell them that, no, unfortunately, I'm sorry, that didn't happen in 1978. So he's, he's been here the whole time in the basement, you know. And, um, I mean, after the initial shock wore off, the 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 feeling the family had was okay. We got to do what's right now. It's a second chance to do this. So, so some of the remains, or at least in least one case, were potentially kitty litter. Is that right? Right. Well, see what had happened. It was this family unfortunately lost their their seventeen year old son back in two thousand one, I believe, and um, the cremated remains were the quote-unquote cremated remains were given to the family at that time. But what had happened is that they saw, you know, his name in the paper. And they were wondering, they, they called me up and they said, well, that couldn't be because I have his cremated remains here. They're in an urn. And um, and I, what I had was most definitely his cremated remains because they were from the crematory. It was sealed up with his name on it and the tag. There's a metal tag inside the cremated remains bag, and it matched. And um, we certainly had the what were really his cremated remains. So the family came into the funeral home and um, gave us what they had been given back then, um, representing his cremated remains, which certainly weren't um, his cremated remains. They were what what my professional opinion um, would be, yes, kitty litter, unfortunately, something like that. Hmm. Is there right. cr- criminality in this? There, There is definitely um, uh, an unethical sense of, of proceeding, um, but I don't know that criminality would be the right way to say it. Um, definitely f- some sort of s- civil fraudulent activity, you know what's going on, but as far as a criminal activity, I, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. Do you know if, if, if the families are pursuing anything in, in the legal I know that process? the family, to get cremated remains tested is quite expensive. 
um, to just to find out, you know, if they are cremated remains to get, if they can pull any DNA or anything like that out of cremated remains, it's very difficult. And um, I, I don't know that it, it is even, you know, 100%, you know, so the testing alone is about $1,200, anywhere from 1200 to $2,500. And um, the only way to get that testing waived would be if the CBI or something like that would, would order testing. So that would be completely up to them and the family, you know, in any investigation that was going on outside of, you know, the funeral home. But um, I don't know that the family is pursuing that because of the, the high expense, unfortunately. So the Colorado legislature abolished the licensing of funeral directors and embalmers in 1982. Right, right. At- attempts to reinstate licensing repeatedly have been voted down since then. Lawmakers argue that there have been too few complaints to warrant more regulation. Stephanie Blackstock, the executive director of the Colorado Funeral Directors Association, uh, explains here how her organization is trying to add more oversight. Currently, the the registration of funeral homes and crematories does not include random or unannounced inspections. Um, That is one area that we would like to remedy within the laws such that an authorized person would be allowed to maybe see what happens in places where the public is not allowed. What do you think? Well, what I think is, is she's, she's exactly right. And, you know, what she says where the public is not allowed, I make sure at, at my funeral home that I open up every square inch of, of my funeral home to the public should they, should they want to see it. And I, and I encourage it as well. You know, there's no place at a funeral home that should be... Um, uh, you know, closed off to a family that that um, is curious and wants to make sure that their loved one is being treated digni- in a dignified manner. Um, so what she says is, is is right, but you know whether or not Colorado is going to do that anytime soon, I I, I highly doubt. Well, Matthew, would you leave us with what was perhaps the silver lining of this story? Uh, was there a happy ending? There certainly was. And, and, and how I mentioned earlier, how we had the service, you know, for the, for the cremated remains that were unidentified, um, I really think that, you know, some of those were, were Vietnam veterans. Some of those were World War II veterans. Um, we had a, the military honors were given to those cremated remains that were, that were um, either un, unclaimed or unidentified, you know. Um, so I think the silver lining is, is just getting those cremated remains, a final send-off, a celebration of their life, um, closure Mm. for them. Thanks for speaking with us. You're quite welcome. Thank you for having me. Matthew Boyle bought the Rose Memorial Funeral Parlor in Montrose last fall and inherited with it a trove of abandoned cremains, which he addressed. Coming up, a Colorado Springs musician lends his ear to birdsong. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Musician Tom Taylor of Colorado Springs has paid close attention to the birdsong in his backyard for some 30 years. And in that time, he has noticed variations which he likens to blues licks, Beethoven, and even the Three Stooges theme. Taylor is not a scientist. He's a professor of jazz guitar at Colorado College, and so he comes at this from a musician's point of view. And, uh, in fact, he has brought his keyboard with him 
to illustrate some of the points that he'll make. And Tom, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Ryan. Pleasure to be here. Let's listen to a bit of Black Capped Chickadee song. This is a recording from the web, not from your backyard in the Black Forest, but to similar. Lay it on me. Okay, so you started listening to Chickadees back in the late 80s. Yes. And what, I don't know, melody did you hear back then? Well, I heard the first two notes. Hear those two notes there? Yes, definitely. But my Chickadees turned it into a blues lick. There's a third note, man. There's a note missing there. It's... It always resolves to an F on my property. They love F. And... Uh, wherever you got that little clip of the of that chickadee, I heard those on the web. It's only two notes. Yeah. My chickadees all do three notes. And so your chickadee, wherever you grab that, they're doing a B flat and an A flat. I need the F. <laughs> and now it's a blues like, you know. You know, you know, that kind of stuff. So so is it just that your chickadees are hipper? What's going on here? Well, I've had rehearsals there for 30 years and jam sessions. I don't know. You know, I just don't know that much about it. Uh, being an artist more than a scientist, I'm yeah. not an ornithologist. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a dilettante in this area. I just recorded what I heard. I do that all the time. Whenever I'm hiking up in the hills, I'll have a piece of music paper or pencil. And if I hear something interesting, I scribble it down. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, they have a three-note little theme. I'm not sure if they're mountain chickadees or black-capped. Uh, you know, I'm not that refined in my analysis. Uh, but that's what's happening on my land at 7,500 feet in the Black Forest north of Colorado Springs. And, and in fact, you have kept a journal and over time noticed differences in your yes, backyard. Yes, So let's talk about these differences. Okay. Well, uh, you know, being a composer, I immediately was attracted to the way they started inflecting their pitch a little bit, not unlike Bartok or one of those famous dudes, you know. So it really started out in the late 80s, just this little... And they'd all be doing ba 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 ba, you know, be a bunch of them doing this. Or I guess their territorial mating thing in the springtime, so they do that. But gradually over the years, it could have been like eight or nine years. My journal is rather sketchy. You know, I just write down little melodies as I hear them. The second note, that one, that's a black note on the piano. That's an A flat. That all of a sudden they started inflecting that. They lowered that what we call a half step. It went from this A flat to a G. So now I started hearing this melody on top of the original. Now here's, mm. here's the original. You know, like a little blues lick. And now here. And that reminded me of like an old R&B bass line. Well, that sounds like three blind mice. No, well, you're almost there. We're not there. You're We're not ahead there? Of, no, that's that just... no, it's a blues lick, man. It's an R&B blues lick, uh, our bass line. Listen to that. You never listen to Burning Love by Elvis, my man? Oh, for sure. You know, I embellish, of course, a little bit, but the first three notes. So then that final B flat. Holy moly, there's the king himself. Dum, 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 dum,
I see. There's my chickadee melody, baby. There it is right there. There it is. Okay, but it has continued, you say, to evolve. Well, yeah. So now, you know, I'm thinking, well, now with those two melodies skittering around, I kind of liken it a little bit to the development section of a of a symphony, of a classical symphony. You know, the composers would lay out their initial theme or themes, and then they start playing games with them. And then gradually this other theme came in, and which I assume is now part of their development section in the middle of the symphony. So the original was this. Right. Then that second note got lowered. There's the Elvis. My wife and just call it the You know, we sit out there with a Bloody Mary on Sunday and she go, oh, there's the Elvis. So, you know, I go, okay. So now that top <laughs> The Elvis note, bird. The yeah. Elvis. There's the Elvis. That, that, that's our shorthand. Uh, she has a good ear. So we, um, uh, we discovered after a while that that first note then became inflected downward a half step. It went from a B flat, a black key on the piano, to the lower adjacent white note A. Now we get three blind mice or the three stooges theme, as I recall it, being an old guy. So oh, yes, hear that. much more purely the street, Three Stooges. There the Stooges you go. Uh-huh. So I, I, I'm calling it the Three Stooges. Also three blind mice. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course, but... I'm so interested in, in this observation if it's that the birds are changing or your hearing of them is changing. Oh, no, this is what I heard. People have been – and one of the funny things just in the side, everybody's constantly asking me for my field recordings of this. And I'm thinking, well, you know, as a composer, I'm writing down what I'm hearing. This is accurate. I, I'll bet my life that this, this is what I heard. And people have been recording things in writing for like 6,000 years. We didn't have like smartphones till recently. Yeah. So this is the recording. The recording is what I notated, and I hear all three of these things going now at the same time, which is kind of colorful, very nice. At the same time, so it's a chorus of three blind mice and Elvis. And Elvis with a little bit of the blues with, in with there. some blues. Yeah. Ornithologists differentiate between bird calls mm-hmm. used for sounding alarms and bird songs, which are likely about romance. Uh, what we're talking about here is bird song. And scientists have noted geographic and other variation in chickadee songs, just to add a little sure. of the science here. Sure. Sometimes they'll sing two notes, sometimes five notes. Do you always hear the three notes? No. Sometimes they will do that little abbreviated one you played with just the top two notes. Maybe. Yeah. Leaving that out or maybe it'll just be or something like that. Or it might go. Little abbreviated fragments of it, so I don't know if they're distracted or just experimenting or having a little fun, but that adds to the overall texture of what I call this chickadee symphony. So all this stuff's going on, and it's uh, it's fascinating to listen to this texture. Chickadee symphony, I like that. Why did you start keeping a journal about chickadee song back in 1988? Oh, I've been paying attention to sound ever since I was a kid. I mean, (laughs) it's just natural for me just to always pay attention to acoustics and sound in the natural environment. It's always attracted me. Uh, So what else would that include? 
Oh, uh, just as I'm hiking along the trail, I'll, I'll listen. I encourage people, listen to the way your footsteps sound as you walk along the trail. As you pass a rock cliff or a, a rock formation, you'll hear your steps bounce back to you. You'll create a little bit of an echo there. You'll create like a reverb a little bit, that type of thing. Hmm. Uh, if you're walking through high grass, it kind of muffles the sound. Uh, sound is everywhere. That's one of the elements that's so overlooked in our culture, which I think adds to a little bit of the, the, the neuroses of modern life because people are always in an acoustically horrible environment. They just are. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. Hopefully you're not in a terrible acoustic environment no, this, right this now. No, this is lovely. This so, studio, I'm so you've glad. got it covered in the studio. My guest is musician Tom Taylor of Colorado Springs. He's a professor of jazz guitar at Colorado College. And we're talking with him about his decades-long sonic relationship with the chickadees in his backyard in the Black Forest near Colorado Springs. You composed and recorded a CD with Denver's Mercury Ensemble called Ishi Sings. Yes. That uses an archival recording of the last Yahi Indian from Northern California singing in 1911. And you say that also echoes the Chickadee song. Oh, sure. Uh, the first two, well, yeah, I, I, I kind of fell in love with three of Ishi's songs. I was able to get a... Uh... A, a tape that was dubbed from the original Edison wax cylinders. That's a little before your time. I think we have a recording of Ishii singing, so that okay. listeners, yeah, listeners will have a sense of what that okay. sounds like. Three blind mice. Three blind mice. Huh. Now, he's not thinking of Three Blind Mice. That's the uh, song for a uh, girl's adolescence ceremony that he sang. Now, no one knew what his language actually meant okay. because he was a final Yahi Indian. So this is all mystery. I love mystery in life. I like having everything not explained. But, you know, his... So that was his song. And then the chickadee song was... Oh, it could be something you heard in nature, but these are just tones that spring forth from natural acoustic properties. These are found in every culture. These are melodies that are extracted from what one might call a pentatonic scale, a five-note scale. Very simple. Yeah. But they found bone flutes and tuned rocks in 40,000-year-old caves that are tuned to pentatonic scales. Everybody uses them around the world. It's the scale they use for Danny Boy. They use it in Asian music, gamelan music. It's a very simple sturdy scale stands up for thousands of years gamelan i think an indonesian instrument exactly yeah. uh and you uh, replicated ishi singing with i think the bassoon is that right yes yeah. i chose the bassoon as his voice To bring this back to chickadees, that melody can just be found in so many human songs. Yes, it's part of what we call the overtone series. If you follow just a natural phenomenon of the way pitches kind of recreate themselves and splinter off into the higher stratosphere of pitches way, way up in the ether up there, you'll start to get an actual Western scale, something that we would recognize as a Western scale. Do you bring this into your classroom? 
Yes, I do. Sometimes eyes glaze over, and and some. <laughs> Hopefully, they're not doing that now. Okay, <laughs> you know, you got. I'm dealing with like really harried, rushed, pressured, twenty year old students, and sometimes they say, "Hey, man, I'm just here for a guitar lesson." <laughs> and, but we have fun. We have fun. But I just try to tie in um, the commonality of music in all cultures and how it's such a vital part of the human expression and anything that humans are doing. It's already been done in nature. I always emphasize that the word art comes from artificial. It's fake. We're making it up. Huh. The chickadees will sue for copyright infringement. Well, it doesn't matter. I mean, I don't get paid anyway. You know, everything's (laughs) for free now anyway. Heck, I could sue too. I don't get paid for all the CD sales I get. But that's another topic. Another topic. Tom Taylor, thank you for being with us. Oh, it was my pleasure, Ryan. Had a blast. Composer Tom Taylor teaches jazz guitar at Colorado College in Colorado Springs, and he listens quite carefully to chickadees at his home in the Black Forest. And that's the sound we've made for today. This is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio News. I'm Ryan Warner.